When the, the whirling of the mind stuff ceases, then the true nature of that which knows all things, the true nature of that which knows what can be seen, heard, and known, then that starts becoming apparent. But again, not as some amazing cosmic experience, but just as, ah, oh, it's that simple. And I think in my own, my own journey, it's just like, almost year by year, it's like, oh, it's that simple. Oh, it's that easy. Oh, it's that obvious. How could I have missed it? I think we miss it because our minds get engaged in looking for something. Today, we spend the hour exploring the rich history and body of teaching from one of science and non-duality's most popular presenters, Peter Russell, in an episode entitled Evolving with Consciousness. Welcome to The Sounds of Sand, presented by Science and Non-Duality, offering dialogue on the bridge between science and spirituality. If you're ready to explore together, listen in. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective consciousness. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Welcome back to The Sounds of Sand. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Michael Riley. And today I'm very excited to present this episode with Peter Russell. And we look back at many of his science and non-duality talks at the conferences over the year and some of his online talks. And I got a chance to speak with him to contextualize many of the concepts that he's been speaking about for decades now. And we'll have a bio and links to Peter and his work in the show notes. But just as a brief introduction, Peter originally studied mathematics and theoretical physics and became increasingly interested in the nature of consciousness. And in the late 60s, traveled to India to study meditation and Eastern philosophy. And on his return, he established a meditation center in Cambridge, England, and went on to pioneer the introduction of personal growth programs to corporations. He's the author of a dozen books, including The Global Brain, Waking Up in Time, and Letting Go of Nothing. And we cover a lot of ground in this episode, so I just want to get right into the conversation. And I started by asking Peter, what were some of his earlier experiences in his life that led him to develop this thirst for searching for a deeper meaning through science and spirituality? Ah. <sighs> I think I mean in my early life as a child teenager there were two there were two parallel interests which I think came together later um, one was I was fascinated by science I was a mathematician and I was good at it and I loved it and went to university to study maths and then theoretical physics and that that was a real fascination passion and all along in the background, there was this interest in consciousness, the mind, um, 
like you know many kids I was doing things like spinning around and making myself dizzy or trying self-hypnosis those sorts of things or flashing lights you know <laughs> as a you know kid you know exploring other states of consciousness it was there in that sort of exploration and then that that developed more in my sort of late teens early 20s when I was at Cambridge and I became more and more fascinated by um, the whole thing of consciousness and I began to get interested in meditation as a way to you know really explore my own consciousness and and so that became a real sort of parallel thing then with my more academic studies and there came a moment it was about two years into uh, my undergraduate degree where I realized that no amount of physics, mathematics, was ever going to answer the question, which I'd always been fascinated by as a kid, the brain-mind question, as it was called then, why are we conscious? Why is there a mind? Or how does mind come out of brain? And I'd always been sort of, you know, playing around with my fellow schoolmates, you know, we're having sort of teenage philosophical discussions. But that sort of came to a head when I realised that was never going to be answered by physics. And so that's when I, that was a real turning point. Um, I began to see that the, you know, the the real way to explore consciousness was not putting electrodes on the skull, which I'd been doing because I also was studying experimental psychology at one stage. But the way to study consciousness was internally to actually, it's a subjective phenomena, and so you need to go inside and explore consciousness firsthand. And I realised that's what, you know, the mystics and spiritual adepts and saints of the ages had been doing, and so I got interested in Eastern philosophy and mysticism. And that became, a, yeah, that became a really important thing for me, exploring all of that. And then later, a few years later, I went to India to study meditation in much more depth and Indian philosophy. And that was, that was another turning point because I realized then there was something behind all the world religions. In my youth, about age 13, I rejected religion. It was like just a load of weird mumbo jumbo from the past, which had no relevance to today. And so religion was out for me. But what I realized in India was there was something behind all the different religions. And I became interested in what was their spiritual essence? What was that about? Which was clearly about how we get trapped in certain ways of seeing things. You can call it egocentric ways or materialistic ways. How we limit our potential. And I could see that each spiritual tradition in its own way had an understanding of that and how we could release ourselves from that so that became a second major turning point is just wanting to wanting to explore that and I think from then on part of my um, underlying sort of purpose is to actually distill that essence of all the world's spiritual traditions look what is that essence of all the traditions and find ways to communicate that and share it with people in the present time in language that is totally appropriate for these times rather than hundreds or thousands of years ago. And from the sand stage, Peter goes a little deeper into this journey to India to study Eastern philosophy. My own journey, spiritual journey, really began way back 50 years ago in the 60s. I was a child of the 60s with all that that means and discovered TM, Transcendental Meditation, and went off to India and lived with the Maharishi and had my own 
deep initiation into Advaita Vedanta. It wasn't called non-duality then, but it was, that's what it was. He was a great non-dual teacher, didn't use that language. But that became a real foundation for me. That time with him and over the years with him was a real foundation in my own understanding, appreciation, experiences that has, has never left me. And I, I would still say 50% of what I have to say today came out of those very formative years in India with the Maharishi. And then things moved on. I got very interested in the whole notion of Gaia, the living organism, and how we fitted into Gaia. And I wrote the book which I became most well known for, The Global Brain, which was really about, on the surface, it was about where computers were going. And this was before the internet actually existed, but where I saw computers were going. So I was I was actually closely involved with the early networking of computers, and I saw that that was going to be a really significant thing for the future of humanity. But the real agenda in the book was, will this become a sane global brain or an insane global brain? And to become a sane global brain, there had to be a widespread shift in consciousness. So I was really arguing for a widespread shift in consciousness from a planetary perspective, and that was very much part of my thinking for several, several decades. And I wonder, Peter, if your work on pioneering this concept of the global brain, and if we think about what has been called globalization, and now we're coming through a worldwide pandemic, and now we're having this shared global experience of the pain of environmental collapse, do you think there's an emerging global body that we're all collectively beginning to share that's starting to come into sharper awareness yes it does i mean we're talking both about the big picture and the and, and the personal picture here the embodiment for me is is how i mean in my personal practice it's really about connecting with the i call it the stillness the the contentment of just the unperturbed mind coming back coming back to that ease and stillness which is something i think we all want and in, in a way gravitate towards but we get so caught up in all these other things we miss it and so embodiment for me is being able to be in touch with that inner quality of what do we call it presence or coming home or stillness or beingness to be in touch with that while I am out in the world. And so the practice is in a way touching into that and then in a way keep keeping in touch with that. And it's not, not always easy, but having that be there more as I interact with the world and do the work I do and talk to people and, and whatever it is, helping people and just living my life. So it's about that's about the embodiment for me. And then that is in the context of what you know what you talk about the, the global brain the global body what is happening in the world um you know and i find you know if i really opened up to what is happening i couldn't bear it you know sometimes i'm reading a news story and just my heart breaks open at something and that's just one little thing of some people what's happening to them it's like how could i possibly you know 
open up to what's real. I, I couldn't do it. I don't, I don't think most of us can. So how do we sort of, how do we open up to what's happening without completely going into, you know, emotional freak out, but to open up to it so that that is there as a real, a real personal reality in which we are operating. When we embody that coming home, that stillness, it's just not just a question of sitting there, it's then a question of, okay, how can I come out in the world? And I, what I feel is, you know, the more we can be in touch with that reality in ourselves, the less we get caught up in our ego mind, which is all, you know, about what's going to help me, you know, it's, it's basically a survival mode, the ego mind, how do I survive, either physically, socially, psychologically, the less caught up in that, the more I think we can begin to address what's needed in the world, rather than looking at what, looking at what the ego mind wants us to do, we can actually step back and allow a much greater wisdom come into our into our world into how can I actually how can I have influence what can I do that makes the most sense that's not so caught up in the ego mind in 1966 John Lennon of the Beatles channeling the psychedelic experience Emmanuel based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead by Timothy Leary Richard Alpert later known as Ramdas and Ralph Metzner sang the line, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. That love is all, that love is everyone, it is knowing. And this song, Tomorrow Never Knows, ushered in a cultural revolution mixing rock music, psychedelics, and Eastern mysticism for a new generation in the West. And Peter had a front row seat to this collision of East and West through the music of the Beatles. I asked him about his memories of this revolution and his front row seat. Very, very clearly, I was at my local youth club when um, Love Me Do was released. And it was a fascinating moment because, you know, up until then, you know, the pop songs have been what they were, partly sort of, you know, it was all songs that were written by songwriters for people and, you know, standard groups and things. And we were, and somebody got this record and put it on, Love Me Do. We hadn't even heard of the Beatles or anything. And everybody went, wow. It was like, it was just a realisation. Here is something totally different and so refreshing. It wasn't like, or oh, we gradually learned about the Beatles. It was at that moment that record was released, it was like, wow what is this and then just became an avid follower you know the next the next single the next single, just an avid follower of the beatles and so i was you know i was living through that whole growth of the beatles i was you know through you know the mid 60s i was in i was you know 21 in 1967 <laughs> what better time to enjoy 1967 at college 21 free away from home so i was not too young to just be hearing it i was right in the thick of it in that whole subculture and not too old to have got a job and not be able to be free so i was like i was really i had an incredible freedom and i was really sort of involved in that whole revolution that was happening and got to know quite a lot of the people and things it was so I was part of that subculture so it was definitely deeply deeply ingrained in me 
Ladies and gentlemen, this is Our World, broadcasting live from the Beatles recording studio here in London, where the latest Beatles record is at this moment being produced. The Beatles' new composition, All You Need Is Love, is a song about peace. 23rd of June, 1967, was the first ever global television broadcast. And it was called One World, and one of the presentations on that program were the Beatles live doing the final recording of All You Need Is Love. Which to me is like it's really, as I'm an aging hippie, you have to allow me this. But it's like that to me was really significant. The first global television broadcast was the Beatles singing to the world, All You Need Is Love. And in a way, that's sort of become the anthem of the time, and it's something which is 50 years later, we hear that song and we all go, yes, all you need is love. Tim was talking yesterday about love. So many teachers have said that it's about love. It's all about love. And there's a line in that song which they sing so fast that we miss it. Nothing you can do, but you can learn to be you in time. Nothing, nothing you can do, but you can learn to be you in time. It's easy. All you need is love. And what are we doing here? In time, 50 years later, we're learning to be you, we're learning to be ourselves. And what I want to start with is just looking at, in a sense, what happened there, where we've come from today. And I think we've been on this incredible spiritual journey which started in the 60s. It's more than just a spiritual journey, it's a cultural journey. Because that was the real beginning of the feminist movement, the women's movement. It was the beginning of alternative health, yoga coming in, organic food, the gay, the gay liberation. Homosexuality was decriminalized last month, 50 years ago in England. And it was really the beginning, the 60s of the whole spiritual renaissance that we are have been in the last 50 years. I call it the Awakening Project. Ken Wilber talked about it as the, the Atman Project. Atman being the Indian word for self. The rediscovery of who we are. And of course the Beatles, two months later, two months after this global broadcast to the world, all you need is love, the next great headline they made was teaming up with the Maharishi and starting to meditate. And the whole 60s had been powered, not the whole 60s, but part of the revolution had obviously been that whole psychedelic revolution that had been going on. And, and then there was the whole movement to say, okay, yes, you can get incredible states of consciousness with psychedelics, and they were great opening, and yet there was this sudden realization those guys out in India, those guys out in India, they know something too. 
And it was like, okay, we leave behind that. Let's go to India and see what they know. And I was part of that and I jumped in my VW bus and we drove to India. We did, we just got in our VW, our Volkswagen bus and we drove to India, which was an amazing journey in itself. So that was really one of the seeds that really brought meditation into the world. If they hadn't started, it would have happened anyway, if the Beatles hadn't started TM, I think things would have got going a lot, lot slower. It was inevitable it was coming, but they sort of, they accelerated the whole process of awakening. And almost, I feel, if they had a spiritual mission, they were sort of building up to that, and that then their, their peak was, 67, then leaving that message, all you need is love and let's try meditation. And here we are. And so this cultural revolution, fueled by the late 60s explosion of psychedelics, art, music, and Eastern mysticism, were expanding people in the West's view of the world. And at the same time, space exploration, the dawning of the information age and technology were opening up a new possibility of imagination. And from the sand stage, Peter talks about how these spiritual and scientific revolutions could coexist in a new reality. And what's fascinating about these is they're showing two things, these two revolutions. First, that space, time, matter, energy aren't absolute. There's no fixed material world, physical world which was one of the great shocks. And the second thing is that consciousness, observation, knowing play a crucial role in it somehow. But what we're trying to do is, these two great revolutions pointed to something profound. There's no, doesn't seem there's a material, physical world like we thought there is, and consciousness is somehow deeply involved. And yet nearly all the ways we're trying to understand these phenomena is we're trying to understand them within a mindset that thinks there is a material, that there is a material world and from a paradigm that says consciousness isn't really important. And to me this is no wonder we're not getting anywhere. They're pointing to a completely new way of looking at the world and we're still stuck in a sort of pre-20th century way of thinking and we can't quite bear to imagine what the world might be like if we really took these implications seriously. Which is why Richard Feynman said, nobody understands quantum physics. And I think he's right. I don't think anybody will understand quantum physics and still we, until we start including consciousness within the equation. So, I want to look at a couple of things. First of all, what do we mean by reality? Because we use reality in two senses. Either there's the physical reality, the world out there, the world you're seeing now, or so it seems, and then there's the experience reality that appears in consciousness. And that's what you're actually experiencing, is not the room out there, you're experiencing what appears in consciousness. And so we use reality in both these ways. And what's happening, and we, this is, we all know this, in fact this is one of the things that science or psychology, neurophysiology fully understands, but it doesn't actually think, of, think it through the implications. What we know is that the world out there, whatever it is, and we'll look at that in a moment, gets processed by the brain, and we have this experience of 
seeing, hearing, tasting, touching the world out there. But we're actually living in a virtual reality created by the brain. It's a very good one, it's a pretty accurate one, it allows us to navigate around. This is where I think, you know, when I reach out to touch this, is it is where I see it. But we're actually living in a reality, and this is an important point, why don't we see everything as this? Why do we see a material world that's devoid of consciousness? We don't see consciousness here. Why does all this appear devoid of consciousness? Because if, if we say everything's consciousness, it clearly doesn't look like that. And the reason is, comes back to the, the map and the territory idea. What is out there is the dynamic, structured, aware field. Here is the representation inside us. What we see are the shapes, colors, forms. But consciousness is not part of the map. It's like if you, you, know, if you look at a map and you ask, where am I? All you see is a little arrow saying, you are here, pointing to where you are in the map. And it's the same with consciousness. We create this whole representation of the world and the representation doesn't have consciousness represented within it. And then you have this little arrow saying consciousness is here. This little point in the map, in the center of the map, is where consciousness is. And we don't see that the whole map is actually an appearance in consciousness, but it doesn't itself contain consciousness in the representation. It's a bit like looking at, you know, you look at a movie and you realize the movie's made of light and you then start examining the movie to see where the light comes from. You'll never find it. So we perceive an unconscious material world and wonder where consciousness comes from. And this is why the hard problem arises in the first place. And Peter, I think that one of the reasons that this question of what comes first, matter or consciousness, is so present is because of the way we even language, you know, how we, we construct our description of the world. Even today, as we're having our conversation, it seems as though we're talking about consciousness and minds and thoughts and presence as emanating from a physical world. And I wonder if this construction of language is somehow an impediment to how we can feel into the experience of exploring consciousness. You see, I think it, what's happening is there's, there's two realities coexisting and both are true. I mean, there's the reality of I'm sitting here, I'm looking out the window and there's a tree out there and some of the leaves are brown and some of the leaves are green and there's a blue sky and I just saw a bird fly by. That's, that's the reality we live in and that's the reality we're designed to live in. You know, as, as creatures, we, we want to have this illusion <laughs> of actually being in the physical world and this is operating on us. And that's absolutely right it's totally necessary that's how we survive as organisms so that's when we're talking we are talking that way because that is that is the actual world we live in and then there's the understanding that all of this is actually an appearance in consciousness you know when we begin to understand the world we realize yeah, I'm, you know I'm seeing a green leaf, but actually what's happening is 
green light is stimulating one area of my retina and brown light is stimulating another area of my retina and messages going back to the brain and the brain in a fraction of a second puts all this together along with all the other senses and everything and creates this reality we experience so the what we're actually experiencing is a reality created in the mind that's appearing in consciousness so in that sense consciousness is absolutely fundamental because everything i know even you know our mathematical understanding our physics our laws of physics all of that stuff is all happening in consciousness it's all an arising in our experience and that is also absolutely true and so these are the two realities you know one you know the realization that consciousness is absolutely fundamental it is all all we all we ever actually know is the activity that's happening in the mind that's all we ever actually know and yet that within that reality we we give it an objective quality in order that we can work with the world interact with it and go and you know brush up the leaves get them out of the way get them off the drive that sort of thing so the two coexist for me and that that's important it's not like it's not that everything is consciousness therefore matter is an illusion it's not said there is something there is something out there in the world definitely there's what i call a tree but when you look into it the tree is not made of what i thought it was made of it's like the brain has created this impression another creature may have a different completely different perception of the tree you know like a bat is going to be seeing it in ultrasonics it's going to have a very different impression of the tree so there is some i'm not saying there's nothing out there there's definitely a world out there but all we know of it is the particular representation of it that our brains create for us and but, yeah, and we live in that representation. That's where we live. It's in the reputation the brain has created. Nice. That makes sense. And so as someone who's been on this path for many decades now, I wonder about your own evolution and the evolution of consciousness itself. Speaking for myself, I've been meditating and exploring, reading about the nature of consciousness for about 25 years. And I'm constantly amazed that it seems as though I'm always discovering new openings in my practice and amazed that there doesn't seem to be an endpoint to this seeking. And has that been your experience too, or do you feel that there's more of a, a steadiness yes, and yes, a continuity yeah. oh, yeah. in your own practice? No, 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 it's, no, it's, there's a, you know, in some sense the steadiness, but it's continually evolving, continually learning new discoveries. Um, it, it's just an ongoing journey very much an ongoing journey and i think you know various teachers i know who have said this you know people who you know whatever i don't like the word enlightened i prefer the word awakened as a better term but you know people who seem to be fully awakened in the, in the you read them and they're talking about then they discover another dimension to it and something else so it's not like you get awakened and that's it it's like even within that there's more unfolding more revelation more discoveries so I think it's you know it's probably true for most people. There's always more to discover. This certainly is for me, and I mean I enjoy that. It's like ah, another hair. Oh, this helps. Oh, it's a lot of a lot of it for me is is not too much discovery in terms of understanding, but discovery of 
what really helps in my own yeah. life, in my own practice. Right. And I'm really fascinated uh, about your talk about accelerated change and the way you speak about how quickly things are changing in our current era and through the concept that you introduced in the 80s of the global brain. And has this concept of an evolving consciousness been a part of your work for a long time? The acceleration has always been in my understanding. I mean, way back again when I was a teenager and first came across the whole mathematical concept of exponential growth, I was fascinated by it and how the rate of change grows exponentially in so many areas. And I could see that working in human society. Every, everything was growing exponentially, not just population, but resources, consumption, all of that was growing exponentially. And I, and almost in every, in every book, in some way or another, that idea of exponential growth crept in as, as a background to, to where we're going. And, and that's still there. In fact, I'm working on another book right now on really looking at exponential growth and where it's taking us. So that's always been there as a thread. And it's a difficult thing because the human mind isn't really, hasn't really evolved to look at, at sort of exponential growth. We look at linear growth in our minds. We can't really foresee where exponential growth is taking us. You know, the old idea that's often used as an illustration is and this is the story, it's probably not true at all, but the, the story is um, when somebody invented the chessboard, he gave it to the king, and the king said, oh, how much can I pay you for that? And he said, well, you can give me one grain of rice on the first board, on the first square, two grains of rice on the second, four, and then eight and 16, you know, and then how many grains of rice was the total? It comes out to a heap higher than Mount Everest. But you know, it just gets, goes way beyond our ability to comprehend exponential growth. So that's always been there. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you're working on a new book about this concept of accelerated change and how it's affecting us on a personal and global level. Many people have talked about you know accelerating changes. I mean, people like Ray Kurzweil, you know, has become a champion of it and where it's going. But what they're all doing is looking at where it's going technologically. You know, where we're going to be in you know ten years' time when we have super intelligent computers and where that's going to take us, and, and the acceleration is going to speed up even more. We're going to have you know, they get into, it's all about technology and science and where that's taking us. And that's sort of the, I call it the bounty side of accelerating change. But the other side, which I call the curse of accelerating change, is the stress it puts on all the systems. Uh, because, I mean, stress is loosely defined as the, you know, the inability to adapt to change. When change is coming faster and faster, we reach the limits of adaptation. And you know, that, I think people are finding that on a personal level, there's more and more things to do, take care of, more social media to check, whatever it is. And, but it's also stressing the environment, society, economy, everything is being stressed by the accelerating change. And that's something which people don't look at much. And you could, what I, what I show in the book is that almost every every aspect of the global crisis we're facing in one way or another comes back to accelerating growth. And secondly, that this accelerating growth is inevitable. There's a feedback loop. The more we innovate, the more we can innovate. And it just goes on and on. You know, more scientific discoveries lead to better technologies, which need to able to do other things, which lead to more scientific discoveries. And so it goes on. 
positive feedback loop. And so there's no avoiding it, but also we need to look at you know, not only where's technology and science going, but where's this going in terms of the, the global crisis and seeing that there is no avoiding the fact that the global crisis is going to keep on deepening because of the stress of the accelerating change. And so really recognizing that and accepting accepting that and seeing we have these two we have these two trends going along together, which is you know breakthrough in science and technology and other areas, society and things, and breakdown in other areas. And it's not we used to think it's one or the other, you know, oh God, things are going to break down. We must have a breakthrough in order to you know, avert the breakdown. But it's, I mean, the, the theme I use in the book is like we're in a world that's, um, we're going to have technology beyond our dreams in a world that's breaking at the seams. And how do, you know, those two are going to coexist. And we need, we need to open up and say, okay, how do we, how do we prepare for that? And it's not so much preparing in terms of, um, what we do etc because we don't know what's going to happen we are living through increasingly unpredictable times but how do we prepare ourselves which is you know how do we develop greater resiliency in ourselves which is the ability to you know flex move with the change not get so totally you know in such total deep anxiety as soon as something else changes it's like okay yep this is happening and this is you know this is not good for me there's a strong emotional reaction here but how can i maintain my own a greater degree of inner stability within what's happening and also letting go of expectations it's like okay the world isn't as i thought it was going to be something else has happened it's changed how do we let let go of expectations of what it's going to be like and i think that's a lot of what is happening at the moment with things that are happening in the world. We thought we were moving into a nice, you know, rosier future, and it's like suddenly, whoops, no, it's not going to be quite like you thought. And that, that to me is developing resiliency. And also community. You know, how, do we, how do we support each other and help each other as we move through these times? And so, Peter, the newest book, Letting Go of Nothing, is at the other end of the spectrum and is all about how to allow for more space and stillness and openness in our busy daily lives. And I really enjoyed the sense of letting go that shines through in the text in a simple flow of easy to digest sentences, uh, chapters and structures. And was this unadorned writing style an intentional choice in the process of writing the book? Yes. In the end, it was intentional. I'd been wanting to write a book on letting go for I could almost say for years. I mean, I became fascinated way back that the essence, the essence of all this was was letting go, and so it had been a theme, and I wanted to write a book on it. And I tried, probably I tried three, maybe even four times. I would start it as a regular book. You know, in chapter one, blah blah blah. In chapter two, we see that there's some building up chapter on chapter, like a regular book. Mm-hmm. And each time, about a third to halfway through, I just got bored. It got flat. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then, then I've been playing. I love writing short essays. I love that mode because you can really get your teeth into one piece. You know, get your teeth into you know something a thousand words long and really work on it and polish it and craft it. I love that mode. And it suddenly came to me, 
this is the way to do the book, not as a regular book of all these arguments, but just each one a short piece, just making a point. Um, and they build on each other. It's not like they're all independent. There's an order to them. They build on each other, mm. but they're also, they're also independent. And when I decided that was the way to do it, it all just fell out so easily mm. and a lot of fun. And that was the beginning of COVID. <laughs> when COVID struck, I'd be meaning to do it this way. And in fact, January, February of 2020, I said, okay, now I can start writing this book. I've got a couple of months free to write. Mm-hmm. And of course, come March, it said, you've got a lot more time free to write. Yeah. <laughs> and was there a lot of practice while you're writing it, like basically trying to really somatically feel letting go in meditation and then write? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times... Um, I would actually need to stop and sit in meditation and feel, okay, mm. what is the what is the actual truth here? What is it I'm trying to express? Letting go of all the... I had to let go of the concepts of what I thought I was saying right. and tune in and be internal and just sit there and say, okay, what is it that is true in this? And then find a way to let that come out in the words. So that, that was... It was very much part of the process it was it was writing but also meditation and just inner inner reflection inner inquiry was very much part of it yeah and it seems as though so much of our society is about uh, accumulation and holding on to Mm -hmm. things and uh, the desire for more and more and more accelerated growth as we spoke about uh, never-ending trajectory curves of acquisition so do you have any practices that people can do aside from things that you mentioned in your book of meditation of ways to reconnect to slower systems, to more biological, deep time systems, uh, such as nature, you know, obviously going walk for walks in nature and developing a, a relationship with slower systems? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I think. I think almost there's a general realization of this, whether people have the time to do it. I mean, people talk about now going out and forest bathing or seashore bathing, bathing, not so much in the water, but just like enjoying nature, the water. In fact, it was shown recently the most the most relaxing environment is forests on the edge of an ocean. They're the most relaxing environments. You've got both the, that forest, the green, and you've got the blue of the ocean and the sky. That tends to be the most relaxing environment. Yes, I mean, I think. I think people know that they need to be whether it's being out in nature just taking time off we have less and less time to do that and so that's part of the conundrum is we know we need to you know have have times of much slower pace relaxed pace in a world where there's less and less time to do things so it really becomes a challenge of how do we fit that in because otherwise we're just going to get more and more stressed and eventually burn out and I see that you know that I think a lot of people see that happening everywhere we're so it's so busy we're burning out so we need to we need to find ways to have that balance and it's not just you know balance in terms of the environment which I think is really important you know taking times off to be with nature or just be still but also you know this is where the practice comes in the meditation practice for me is having having a time each day to actually stop and you know, come back not even to slowness, but coming back to stillness. You know, it's real slow. Um, just coming back to that inner place of quiet and stillness and resting in there for a bit. It's like ah, oh. you know, I sometimes feel like you know, 
having a half hour meditation in the evening is like having a weekend's break it can be such such a such a relief and just that slowing down and stopping so i think you know that's something again people often find they haven't got time to do do that in their life but i think the more and more we can just on a daily level integrate some practice of just coming back and being still in ourselves is is really important you know it's it's so much part of the work as to how to integrate and balance these different practices together um and i love the i love the phrase you use home because i i know that feeling when you're in meditation you just feel at home you just feel something so familiar about when you get really settled yeah and that's really really important because i see and i was victim to this as well when i started so many traditions are talking about or wasn't that they were but i was reading you know i was reading the upanishads avidly and other indian texts and i had this idea okay you know with years of practice i am going to discover the truth self and it's going to be this amazing you know maybe psychedelic exotic discovery of something i don't know and then just gradually over time, it's like, no, 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 no. He it said, no, it's just letting go of the stuff that keeps you away from your own inner home. And it's not going anywhere different. It's actually stopping to go, stop not going anywhere different for a change, not trying to go anywhere different, and just coming back to being here, as Ram Dass put it, being here now in this moment. And that, that's coming home for me. And it's, as you say, it feels like, it's like, ah, here I am. The home, as one teaching put it, the home I never left, but thought I did in my mind. Yes. And here's Ram Das on meeting the Maharaji and the sense of home. When I met Maharaji, it was unconditional love. It was wonderful to be loved that way. And I said, I'm home, I'm home. Yeah, no, I love, I love this. When you talk about, you know, this idea of just being present for the the pain that's coming and, the, and that we're experiencing from this um, exponential explosion that you know there's really nothing you know we can do things on the personal level and maybe on the governmental level and we can try to reduce carbon emissions and things of that nature but it's like the the things are already in motion and the only thing we can do is to be present for it and to to be compassionate for ourselves and for each other you know not not to transcend it through some magic you know through some meditation technique or to tune out of it but um no not not at all um you you know this process is underway which maybe nobody or any system has any control of anymore but what is important is not just being just being compassionate but realizing we're not totally powerless I i see a lot of people actually feeling oh my god i'm just powerless over what's happening we may not you know have control over the bigger situation but where we do have influence is in our local i say local um which i mean more closer to us community could be doesn't need to be local geographically but we do have we do have influence over 
people in our, as I say, our local community, you know, right now we're having some influence over the people who are listening to this. So that there are ways we can influence others. And although we may not be able to directly influence, you know, the leader of our country, we can have an influence, we can help people, and whether that's helping them through being more compassionate or helping in other ways, you know, even as things go along, they may need more physical help, um, caring, people may need, you know, wanting to express things, how they're, how they're feeling, what's going on, and the sort of, the angst that's there. So it's not about just, just sitting back and saying, well, you know, let's have compassion. It's like, yes, and how can I help people through this time? How, how can I help people? Where is my sphere of influence? And once again, here's Peter from the SAN conference stage. Maybe their relationship troubles as well, various things, but more and more people are coming with a deep global angst about what is happening. And I think it's going to be more and more important. How do we find ways to allow this global angst out, to, to get in touch with our sorrows? I mean, I know I say this, I'm, you know, it's, it's a challenge for me. How, how do I allow in the sorrow of what's happening? Because we know that if we block sorrow, it just holds back our vitality, it holds us back. We have to find ways to, to allow in the sorrow rather than just glossing things over and say it's all going to be okay if we just change our consciousness, if we all just wake up, we're going to create a wonderful new world. No, we've got to actually come out of denial and begin to face what's happening. I think this is, this is going to be really important. And in a way, coming to an acceptance, as, as we do in grieving, we ultimately come to an acceptance of how things, how things are. We're grieving a, a lost person or something. It's like coming to an acceptance of this is what it's like to be a technologically empowered species as it spirals faster and faster and faster into this whirlpool, to come to some form of deep acceptance of this. And then the question is, how do we respond as individuals? How do we navigate this? And for me, trees are a wonderful example of forests of trees. I spent a lot of my life living in the middle of a forest, in a cottage in England, in the middle of a forest. And I watched storms come through and I noticed several things. You know, firstly, obviously, if a tree is gonna withstand a storm, it needs to have strong roots, it needs to be grounded. It needs to have strong roots, it needs to be grounded. And we, we need that, we need to be grounded in ourselves. because We've got a storm of change coming. If we're gonna face that, we need to just be grounded in ourselves, know, know our deeper being. But trees also need to be flexible to bend with the, to bend with the wind. And then we need to, I think, have this similar thing, we need to be flexible in ourselves, which is about letting go of the old ways of doing things, the ego's idea of what is right and how to do things. We've got to let go of so much of our traditional, conventional egoic thinking and be prepared to be completely fresh in how we approach things. Trees also, community is important. I mean, a tree on its own can't stand a gale. Trees in a forest, they protect each other. And that is, I think that's one thing that more and more people are seeing is we need community to see us through. I have a friend who lived through the wars in Yugoslavia, 
through a whole other story of what she lived through. And I asked her once, I said, how did you get through all that? And she said it was community. It's better sit down with friends and have a cup of tea or get support from my friends. And the other thing that I noticed is I could be in the forest in the middle of a raging storm in my cottage and it was still down at the ground. In the middle of the forest, it was still. And I think more than everything, anything, what we need is to be able to keep coming back to that inner stillness. That's, that's what will hold us, is to better come back to the stillness in ourselves. So that as things are getting crazier and crazier, how do we come back to the stillness? And what this means really is now, like never before, is the time where our spiritual work really becomes critical. This is the time where we need to put into practice in ourselves and helping others. And I, I would just say, what, whatever it is you are learning here this, these few days that helps you be more stable in yourself, more flexible, more open, more loving, more caring, touching into the stillness more, whatever that is, take that and put it into practice. It's, it's so, so important. And what this leads me to, just in a sense, to put in a more, it isn't all doom and gloom, this. I see it also as doom and light. Things are going to get crazy. I really see that. And there's another exponential curve that's happening, which is the exponential growth of consciousness, of awakening. I mean, when I started in all this area 50 years ago, there was hardly anything on the spirituality stuff we're talking about. There was a bookshelf that long in, my, in the Cambridge bookstore, which is the second biggest bookstore in England at the time. You know, now you go into any town, you find bookstores full of books on contemporary spirituality in one form or another. And there's not just books, there's videos, there's the internet full of teachings and stuff. It is exploding. And it's not just the amount of books and lectures and videos and teachings, it's the number of people. And again, there's that positive feedback. We are all continually learning from each other. You are here learning from many, many other people about what has helped them in their spiritual growth. So that is also on an accelerating curve. So at the same time as we have this winding up of technological growth, science, and we have the also winding up of the stress of that, we also have an equal acceleration in consciousness. Where that's leading, I don't know. But I see if there's a, if there's a purpose to consciousness, it is really coming to a full knowing of ourselves. Not just a full knowing of the world, but coming to a full knowing of who we are. And if you that is what is going to help us through these times. And just to, to finish, I'd just like to sort of come back to a bigger picture of what, it, what I see happening in the, in the cosmos, a way of reframing this for me. People talk a lot about you know, the new story of human consciousness, but very often the new story is how you know, we're going to make everything okay 
and we're all going to sort of live happily ever after, to put it very simplistically, but it's based on linear time. But I see a new story based on exponential time that the, the cosmos, with these billions of planets, occasionally life appears, and occasionally that life develops to the stage where consciousness begins to start waking up, technology happens, and it's like a bud of creative intelligence appears on that planet, and it starts blooming and blossoming in just a fraction of cosmic time. And that's where we are. We're in this moment in cosmic history where this bud of consciousness is flowering with us now in us. And it's the image I, I'd like to leave you with is the century plant. Some of you, the century plant is that agave plant which flowers. It's called the century plant because it flowers every 100 years. It doesn't. It flowers once in 18 or 20 years. But the plant, it's growing just gently. And then suddenly, one year, it puts up this huge stalk and hundreds of flowers, like 10, 15 feet up in there. This whole sort of tree of flowers suddenly appears after all this time. And we don't say oh my God, it's going to stop. You know, I wish this flower would stay here forever. We don't. We say, wow. Isn't that amazing? And what I, what I feel for myself, it's time to say, it's not like, oh, I wish, we could, I wish all this would go on for millions and millions of years. It's like, no, let us, can we just rejoice and celebrate this incredible species, being that we are, and all that we are still capable of. Can we rejoice in being here, in being alive at this time? Thank you. Thank you to Peter Russell for your decades of wisdom and teaching and sharing here with science and non-duality. And thank you all for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website. We actually have a very awesome course with Peter on our website uh, that you can enroll into about the art of letting go. You can find out more at our website, scienceandnonduality.com. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of sand content available exclusively to sand members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple podcasts and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well. <laughs>